You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, Malice, Riddle Me That, All Things Crime, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 7, Jodine Saren. It was 2007. Jodine Elizabeth Saren, who went by Jody, lived alone at her condo on the 1900 block of Swallow Lane in Carlsbad, California. Jody was 39 years old, but she had some mental challenges that technically qualified her as disabled. Jody did not work and did not drive. So, while she was able to live alone and had done so for 15 years, she was dependent on her parents, Art and Lois, for support. They were the owners of the condo she lived in, which was in a large, upscale complex with manicured landscaping and somewhat affluent inhabitants. Jody was born on November 21, 1967, in Glendale, California, to parents Art and Lois Saren. Jody had lots of siblings Michael, Nancy, Barbara, Carol, and Chuck. The family moved to Walton Hills, Ohio, where Jody grew up. She graduated from Bedford High School in 1986. But Jody and her parents both ended up moving back to California, settling in Carlsbad, a lovely beach town near San Diego. As I said, Jody had some mental challenges that limited her ability to function at the level of a normal adult. But she lived a very full life. She valued her independence, and although she relied on her family and friends for rides to and from the places she wanted to go, she was on the go quite a bit. Jody loved making beautiful floral arrangements and earned a certificate in floral design. She also loved crafting, kayaking, biking, the beach, and animals, especially her white horse Sam and her cat Angel. She was very involved in volunteering, spending time at nursing homes, and helping with in-home senior care, her church, and the San Diego Humane Society. She also enjoyed socializing with support groups and clubs populated with other high-functioning disabled persons, whom she had a lot in common with. She hung out at meetings of local chapters of groups like the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, and made a lot of friends at groups like Mariposa and the Copper Hill Friends Group. Jody's parents have recalled that Jody had a huge heart and loved to help people. On occasion, they would stop by her place and there would be a homeless man in the shower, or she would have just finished feeding a hungry person. She was described as a friend to everyone, an innocent, who was incredibly giving and a trusting soul. Her parents had to balance Jody's interest in living alone and leading her own life, and their interest in keeping her safe and protected from those who might take advantage of her. Jody's parents lived near her ground floor condo, and they stopped by her call to check in on her on a daily basis. On Valentine's Day 2007, Art and Lois went to dinner and a movie. Lois tried to call Jody before the movie to check in as usual since they had not spoken that day, but she got no answer to her calls. This made her very nervous, as it was not customary for Jody to not answer the phone. 
Lois fretted about not being able to reach Jody and finally made her husband leave the movie early to head over to their daughter's West Bluff North condo. When Art and Lois arrived at Jody's place around 10 a.m., there was no response to their knock on the front door. Again, this was unusual. Art had a key, so he unlocked it. But to his surprise, the internal chain was in place, so they could not enter. This had never happened before, and was worrisome enough that Art decided to break down the door. He shouldered through the chain, and they went inside. No one was in the kitchen or the living room, which were both illuminated by lights. There was no answer to their calls for Jody. Peering around, Art walked back to the bedroom, and what he saw in the dim lighting would have been horrifying for any father. His daughter was on the canopy bed, naked, seemingly engaged in a sex act with a man who was on top of her. Art retreated and went to the living room to keep Lois from coming in. He yelled at the guy in the bedroom to get his pants on and come out. They waited. Art and Lois could not see the pathway from the bedroom to the front door from their vantage point in the living room. After a few minutes, they realized that no one was moving around. Hesitantly, Art went back to the bedroom and his daughter was still on the bed alone. But she was not moving. She was dead. Her head and face were bloody and distorted. She was cold and rigor mortis had set in. She had been dead for hours. The man who had been having sex with her body was gone. Art pulled Jody off the bed and began CPR. Lois called the police. Responding paramedics were unable to revive Jody, and the Saren family's long nightmare began. The medical examiner determined that Jody had died from blunt force head injuries with a contributing cause of manual strangulation. In other words, Jody was beaten and strangled. She had been dead for an estimated 10 hours. The man who was on top of her had been having sex with her cold, dead body. There were obvious signs that she had been sexually violated. Before she died, Jody had fought back against her attacker. She had bruising on her arms, torso, and legs, and skin under her fingernails. Outside the condo, squad cars and a crime scene unit van quickly occupied the parking lot. Yellow police tape cordoned off the condo and the area around it. And investigators at the crime scene who were charged with piecing together what had happened noted the following. Some of this was holdback information, available to the public only now that the case has been solved. Jody had been moved around the condo after the attack on her, and almost certainly post-mortem. Investigators were able to determine this because of blood evidence found at different locations around the condo. All of the blood found was determined to be Jody's. Her body exhibited some post-mortem or perimortem cutting activity that was likely the source of the blood. The killer had also moved some other things around. An oval swing mirror was broken off its stand and perched near the bed, giving whoever was on the bed a full view of the activities taking place there. One of the parts of the mirror stand was also used to assault Jody and prop up her body so that the killer could more easily engage in his paraphilic and voyeuristic behaviors. One thing that was very concerning to investigators was the amount of time the killer had spent and planned to spend in Jody's condo. Based on the estimated time of death, they knew that he had already been there for several hours when Art and Lois arrived. He had closed some shutters and covered other windows with bedding so that no one could see inside and little light came in. This showed that he did not feel rushed and had taken the time to create a very private environment. Then he felt free to move Jody around the condo and take his time with her. It appeared that whoever killed Jody knew that she lived alone and did not expect her parents to stop by that night. 
Art Sarin was able to give police a description of the man he had briefly glimpsed with Jody. He was white in his 30s with brown hair. Art also said the man was a bit heavy set. He thought he might know who the man was and was able to give police a name. This was an ex-boyfriend of Jody's, and he was the first person police talked to. But the ex had an ironclad alibi. He was captured on video at a location consistent with where he told police he was on the day Jody was killed. Police began the arduous task of putting together a suspect list. Jody did not have a cell phone and relied on the landline in her condo to communicate with people. Police pulled all her phone records and started contacting people who had been in touch with her. They compiled a list of all the acquaintances Jody interacted with in her volunteer groups and social circles. Jody had six address books that investigators had to cull through for names of people who might have criminal histories or raise red flags in some way. Investigators worked the case hard. Jody's murder had really shaken everyone and elicited a sense of outrage that this vulnerable young woman had been preyed on by someone who exploited her naivete and generosity. Everyone wanted justice for Jody. I spoke at length with Carlsbad Police Sergeant and Homicide Investigator Eric Covanda, who worked Jody's case from 2016 until its recent conclusion. He told me that the investigation conducted over the years was incredibly thorough and exemplary. The case going unsolved for 13 years was not for lack of trying or good police work. There were some clues that led police to believe that the attack on Jody was not random. Her condo had recently been renovated and Jody had only been living there again for 10 days. Yet, there was a pair of men's shoes found inside the front door of the condo. Jody typically asked people to take off their shoes in her home. Her parents did not recognize these shoes, which were Massimo brand sneakers, and it was thought that they belonged to the killer. It looked as though Jody had invited him in. Police tried to track down the origin of the shoes and where they had been purchased, but this led nowhere. Investigators came to believe they had been possibly been purchased secondhand at one of the many resale shops that catered to transients and surfers in the area. Investigators processing Jody's apartment noted that there were two cups and saucers in the sink, which implied that whoever Jody's guest was, the two had shared tea together. An investigator who had been at the scene told the San Diego Union Tribune, quote, This seems to be an isolated incident among people who knew each other. In other words, police believed that Jody was not killed in a random attack, but by someone she had invited into her condo for a visit. This was supported by the fact that her condo was not ransacked. There was no forced entry at either the front door or either of the sliding glass doors leading outside, and the neighbors had not heard anything out of the ordinary. Embracing the theory that Jody was targeted by someone she knew, police assured residents in the condo complex that there was not a random marauding intruder targeting women. While neighbors didn't hear any screams, arguments, or confrontations, one neighbor did see something that only later did she realize was significant. Samantha Raymond, who lived in another condo unit in the complex, happened to be sitting on her patio on that Valentine's night. She saw a man running on top of and then down an embankment that was adjacent to the condos. She said he was, quote, sprinting down the complex. When she saw the police helicopters circling overhead, she went inside, feeling nervous about the running man she had seen. Samantha wasn't able to give police a description of the man because he was moving quickly and it was dark outside. This was almost certainly the suspect who took off on foot when Art and Lois interrupted him. He ran off into the night without his shoes. 
Police brought in dogs to try to track the scent of the running man, but they found only a sweatshirt that they believed he dropped as he ran. The sweatshirt, almost certainly purchased at a second-hand store like the shoes, led nowhere. The residents of Carlsbad, which is a medium-sized city of approximately 115,000 residents, were shocked and horrified by this murder. It was terrifying to everyone that Jody had been killed in her own home, a victim of someone she likely knew. Desperate for leads, in 2010, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger offered a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person responsible for Jody's murder. In addition to an existing $2,000 Crime Stoppers reward, this brought the total reward fund to $52,000. But tips and leads produced by the reward were fruitless. No one knew who Jody had been with the day she died. Jody's parents, Art and Lois, were of course traumatized by what they had witnessed in Jody's condo and the knowledge that they had very narrowly avoided a confrontation with their daughter's killer. The Sarens took to leaving the area on subsequent Valentine's Days as the anniversary was too painful for them. As revealed in articles in the San Diego Union Tribune, Jody's death continued to haunt them, but they also continued to have hope. Somebody somewhere knows something, and eventually it's going to come out, Art Saren said in an interview. Lois expressed her fears that whoever killed Jody, quote, is going to do this again. And, of course, they both desperately wanted to find out who killed Jody before it became too late for them. Both senior Sarens are well over age 80. They both became activists of sorts in their daughter's case, raising money for charities for victims' families, handing out flyers, arranging for case information to be displayed in public buses, and staying in close contact with detectives on the case. They also both publicly supported legislation expanding California law to include a requirement that anyone arrested for, not just convicted of, a felony, submit a DNA sample to CODIS. The measure passed, and California is now one of the states that gathers DNA from arrestees. Despite all this, and investigators leaving no stone unturned, Jody's case ran into brick wall after brick wall. For years, it was the only unsolved murder in Carlsbad. Art Saren told the North County Times, quote, We're in a constant state of suspension, waiting to get that monster off the streets. Eventually, though, the waiting paid off. Let's talk about the DNA. As DNA testing became more sophisticated, lab techs were able to isolate a male DNA profile from seminal fluid collected from Jody's body. In 2012, they developed a complete genetic profile of the suspect. The DNA on the shoes, sweatshirt, and from the skin under Jody's nails could not be excluded as a match. They all almost certainly belonged to the same person. The profile was sufficient to allow investigators to eliminate suspects by comparing their DNA to the sample. It did not match the person named by Art, the ex-boyfriend, who was ruled out. Nor did the sample match any DNA in CODIS. So even though police had the killer's DNA, they were back to square one. Detective Scott of the Carlsbad Police had worked the case for several years. By 2015, he was incredibly frustrated by the inability to solve it. That year, he attended a conference of the California Homicide Investigators Association, where he sat in on a presentation by Parabon Nanolabs on the phenotype snapshot they could produce from a DNA profile. This snapshot was able to predict some physical traits from DNA, like skin, hair and eye color, gender, face shape, and ancestry. 
Working with DA's office investigator Tony Johnson, Detective Scott decided to get the ball rolling with Parabon, submitting to the company the DNA from Jody's case and commissioning them to perform the phenotyping analysis. Meanwhile, in 2016, seasoned investigator Eric Covanda joined the Carlsbad police and took over Jody's case from Detective Scott, who was retiring. In November 2016, Parabon produced a computer-generated image of the suspect. It depicted a white man of Northern European ancestry with green or blue eyes, sandy blonde or light brown hair, and some freckles. The Carlsbad police held on to the snapshot produced by Parabon until the 10th anniversary of Jody's murder on February 14, 2017, when they held a press conference to announce the release of the snapshot. As he presented the suspect's image to the public, DA investigator Tony Johnson said, quote, We believe the suspect was an acquaintance of or had just met the victim. We believe there are friends of Jodine who will recognize the composite, and we urge them to call us. Police also introduced a website dedicated to Jody's case designed to elicit tips from the snapshot, but none of the many tips led anywhere. Deciding to take the genetic research further, Sergeant Covanda started working with Colleen Fitzpatrick, the trailblazing genealogist who was at the time working with Y, or male lineage, profile markers. She was able to come up with two possible surnames that the suspect might have— these names were held back by investigators at the time, but they were Morrison and Merkel. Then the Golden State killer case broke, thanks to work by investigative genetic genealogist Barbara Ray Venter. And now that this technological tool was accepted as a crime-solving technique, Parabon reached out to the Jody Sarin team to propose that they try genetic genealogy in her case. After all, Parabon already had all the snips from Jody's killer, which they had used to create the snapshot of him. After performing the genetic tracing, they created a short list of names of people who could be the killer, and one of these was the name of the man who was eventually proven to be the killer of Jody Sarin. But Parabon's report showed that they thought this man was an unlikely suspect, because the Northern European heritage reflected in his DNA did not align with the Southern European heritage of his surname, which was Mabrito. Sergeant Covanda took the list from Parabon and started on kinship analysis. This involves collecting the DNA from suspected relatives of the killer to either pinpoint him or eliminate that family tree branch. And he and his partner set up a meeting with Barbara Ray Venter, who agreed to take the SNP profile generated by Parabon and work with it. She came up with a last name for their suspect, Merkel. But wait, there was more. A man in the Merkel family tree had been given up for adoption as a baby. His adoptive family name was Mabrito a name that was on Parabon's list as a suspect who fit the DNA, but not the surname, because Mabrito was an adoptive name. And this man named Mabrito had two sons who were the right age for Jody's killer. One of these was David Mabrito. David Mabrito and a brother were now on the shortlist, but the brother had also been given away for adoption by David's mother. David Mabrito didn't even know he had a brother until late in his life. The brother decided to track down his birth family and connected with his brother David sometime around 2010. Police now had to figure out definitively which one of the two brothers was their killer, which was a problem as they were both dead. Here's where a little luck played into things. Investigators were able to obtain a sample of DNA from the medical examiner in the adopted brother's home state and rule him out. So David Mabrito was their likely killer. 
But he had killed himself in 2011 and had been cremated, so how to prove it? Investigators had no choice but to approach David Mabrito's ex-wife and teenage son. Marissa and Dylan Mabrito sat down with Sergeant Cavanda and agreed to submit their DNA in what was effectively a reverse paternity test. They could determine Dylan's father's DNA by analyzing his own. And the test showed that, indeed, Dylan's father was the man who had killed Jody Sarin. But investigators had to come up with definitive proof that David Mabrito was the contributor of the DNA found on Jody before they could inform the Sarin family with certainty and close the case. But how? David's body was not available for exhumation, and any DNA left behind from him in life was almost certainly long gone. Again, luck would come into it. Sergeant Covanda spoke with Marissa and Dylan about David, and Marissa told him something that was important. She said that about a week before David died by suicide, he had expressed anxiety over something. David's white pickup truck had died one night, and he had been pushing it along when an Oceanside, California patrol officer stopped to inquire as to what was going on. And then the officer noted that the man and the vehicle resembled those in a bolo that had gone out on a robbery that turned out to be totally unrelated. But not knowing that it was unrelated, the officer took down a report noting David Mabrito's name and information, conducted a field interview, took some photos, and obtained consensual DNA cheek swab. This is what Mabrito told Marissa he was nervous about. He didn't tell her this part, but he clearly recognized that his DNA being tested could link him to Jody's murder. He killed himself a week later. Mabrito's brother, the adopted one he had recently connected with, told the same story. Mabrito was nervous about having given a DNA sample. Now, in 2018, Sergeant Covanda contacted the Oceanside PD and learned that the DNA sample from David Mabrito taken in connection with the bolo was still sitting, untested, in the evidence room. Seven years after his death, David Mabrito's DNA was tested against the sample taken from Jody. It was a match. The odds were one in 64 quintillion that the killer was anyone other than Mabrito. In November 2018, the Carlsbad Police Department and the San Diego County District Attorney's Office held a press conference to announce that they had a suspect in the Jodine Sarin case. His name was David Mabrito. He was deceased, and the case would finally be closed. Forensic genealogy had solved the 11-year-old case in a matter of months. So what do we know about David Mabrito? David Aaron Mabrito was born in San Antonio, Texas, to Robert and Linda Mabrito on January 20, 1969. He was 38 when he killed Jody Sarin, and 42 when he killed himself on January 30, 2011. Sergeant Covanda tells me that Mabrito was a tile-setter by trade, but he was a somewhat rootless soul, a surfer, a bit of a flake, and a meth addict. He was described as a transient in the articles about the closure of the Jody Sarin case because at the time of his death by suicide, he had no fixed address. He would couch hop in Oceanside, California and surrounding areas, crashing with friends and his ex-wife and son. Marissa Mabrito had asked for a divorce the year before Jody was killed, tired of David's meth habit, shiftiness, manipulation, and instability. She had worked to maintain a good relationship with him for their son Dylan's sake, and had allowed Mabrito to stay in her garage and would host him for holidays and special events. When he killed himself, Marissa says she blamed herself. She knew that he suffered from depression and she hadn't been able to help him. 
When he died, she had no idea what he had done or that he had a guilty conscience. After he told her that he was nervous about the DNA sample he had had to give, she and Dylan had gone out of town and permitted Mabrito to stay at her home. When they returned, he was dead of an overdose that was determined to be deliberate. She said she now realizes that some comments he made foreshadowed his suicidal ideations and that it all makes sense given the horrific crime he committed. David Mabrito had what Sergeant Covanda refers to as a scant criminal record. He was cited for minor transgressions that did not require fingerprinting and had some drug arrests. None of his arrests would have amounted to felonies requiring the submission of his DNA to CODIS. He had no known history of violence. No one knows how or when Jody and David Mabrito crossed paths. As I said, his name was not in the case file. It's thought that perhaps Mabrito knew someone in Jody's condo complex or had met her at the beach or a drug treatment facility. Jody didn't do drugs, but the facility where she received mental health treatment, counseling, and support also provided support for drug addicts. Jody was described as a friend to everyone. It seems likely that she could have befriended easygoing surfer dude Mabrito as well. Innocent and trusting, she would have had no way of predicting how dangerous he would turn out to be. Sergeant Covanda attributes some of Mabrito's disturbing behavior in Jody Saren's murder to his meth use. Mabrito's ex-wife Marissa told him that when he was using, Mabrito was hyper-focused, detail-oriented, and would repeat behaviors for hours at a time. In addition, meth is known to be a stimulant and to radically enhance sexual experiences. Sergeant Covanda believes that the paraphilic behaviors Mabrito exhibited with Jody, including the cutting and the necrophilia, may have happened because he was strung out on the drug. He believes that it's possible that Mabrito even ingested the drug while at Jody's house. He theorizes that it's possible that Mabrito killed Jody in a frenzy because of multiple stressors that were going on in his life, the impending divorce and his wife moving on, Valentine's Day, and a relapse of his meth addiction. There is no question that Marissa and Dylan Mabrito had no idea about the murder committed by David Mabrito. Marissa said that when police first came to her home, she had no idea what they were looking for. Sergeant Covanda and investigator Tony Johnson said they wanted to talk to her and Dylan. They laid out the case, and she and Dylan willingly gave their DNA. A month later, the investigators returned and had to tell her and her teenage son that Dylan's dad was a murderer. Marissa could not wrap her head around it. She said she thought, there's no way. But then she was shown a picture of the sneakers found at the scene— the Massimo ones, and she recognized them as the shoes belonging to her ex-husband. That sealed it for her. She said it was a very hard day, but she was happy to be able to provide answers for the Sarens and for her and Dylan to get a better understanding of why Mabrito had killed himself. In a way, it allowed her to let herself off the hook. Unfortunately, Marissa's public cooperation with police resulted in her being persecuted by some of the crazies out there. This from the Hartford Current, quote, the decision to help caused blowback for Marissa Mabrito after her ex-husband had been publicly named as a suspected killer. For three months, she said, she had to turn off her phone. There were online attacks. She was labeled a monster as if she had somehow known, had somehow been involved. Once that all blew over, Marissa and Dylan were recognized for their cooperation and bravery with a Citizens of Courage Award from the San Diego District Attorney's Office. The prepared statement read, quote, 
In spite of the likelihood of substantial negative consequences, this mother and son demonstrated extraordinary moral courage by providing DNA to investigators working to solve a cold case homicide. Art and Lois Saren came down to support Marissa and Dylan when they received the award in 2019, thanking them for their help in solving their daughter's case. This was not an easy thing for Dylan and his mother to do, Lois Saren said. As for the Sarens, they were relieved finally to have answers in Jody's case. Lois said she had almost lost hope after 11 years. The couple released this statement to the media, quote, Jodine taught us all with her special challenges, perseverance, and love of nature. There was joy in her laughter, love in her heart, and faith in her soul. The Saren family is forever grateful to the Carlsbad Police Department for their outstanding efforts in attaining justice through resolution of this tragic case. After 11 years, Jody Saren's case is closed thanks to forensic genealogy. And if you are one of the bad guys, they are coming for you. Many thanks go out to Sergeant Eric Covanda of the Carlsbad Police Department for answering my questions about this case. Sergeant Covanda is also an associate instructor with the National Criminal Justice Training Center, where he teaches a course on enhancing investigations using forensic genealogy. Thanks for listening to this episode. Now I'm going to play for you a preview of a podcast I think you'll really like. Criminal Conduct is back with a brand new season. John, what is a constable? Like a police officer, they can carry a gun, a badge, and drive around town with blue lights. But a constable is much more powerful than a regular police officer. In Kentucky, a constable has all the powers of a sheriff. He answers to no one but the voters on election day. And there's one constable in Kentucky that got our attention. Mike Wallace, the constable, was a walking civil rights violation. He's got a gun and a badge and is able to intimidate a lot of people. If he got behind me and turned his blue lights on, I ain't stopping. Constable Wallace has been accused of shaking people down and stealing their cash. It's kind of like giving the fox the keys to the chicken house. This Wally guy is notorious for planting drugs, stealing shit. Everybody knows it. It's just we just can't we just can't nail him. He said, "But you know what? You might you just might be the difference." From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcast comes season two of Criminal Conduct. The new season starts on April sixteenth. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. DNA ID is researched, written, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music composed by Connor Betancourt. To contact us, you can email the podcast at dnaidpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on social media. You can find us at DNA ID Podcast on Instagram, at DNA ID Podcast on Twitter, and on Facebook at DNA ID Podcast. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime and Missing Persons.